So, the big question is this. How can kingdom-minded, for-purpose, entrepreneurs like us, those who are committed to building big things with their life, through their business, do it in a way that they don't lose their body, they don't lose their balance, those closest relationships that mean the most of them, and their being, their connection and daily walk with Christ? How can we build, expand, and create in such a way that we hear, well done, good and faithful servant? That is the question, and this podcast is centered around those who are on this journey at a high level and their tips, systems, routines, and mindsets that have enabled them to pull this off. My name is Forrest Waldman. Welcome to Tribecast. Welcome to another episode of Tribecast. Really excited this morning to sit down with Lieutenant, retired Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann after a 23-year career in Special Forces. Uh, but he's not limited to that. He's also the founder and CEO of the Stability Institute, a real estate entrepreneur, and has a wildly successful TED Talk called The Generosity of Scars that I immensely related to. Uh, Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Forrest. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, let our listeners know a little bit about you and your your varied background and uh, just kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I grew up in a little logging town in Mount Ida, Arkansas, so small, a town so small we didn't even have a stoplight. Uh, a graduating class of 36. And uh, I was 14 years old. A Green Beret walked into our soda shop and uh, changed everything in my life. I was a scrawny little runt of a kid, moved around a lot, uh, mostly on the outside looking in when it came to social circles. And just when I saw this guy, I knew exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And, and I had no idea what he was, but the, you know, his uniform was pressed to perfection. He had like these, these big shiny boots and, uh, and this funny looking soft green hat on his head. Now, I remember that. And I just remember thinking, that's me. You know, that is what I'm going to do. I went up and talked to that guy and um, his name was Mark. He sat down with me. He was home on leave and he told me all about U.S. Army Special Forces, uh, otherwise known as the Green Berets. Uh, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't distinguish between between the Green Berets and the SEALs and Delta. And Mark helped me understand that that SEALs, in addition to having way better hair than Green Berets, um, are like the best in the world at coming in on targets and taking targets down. Uh, and, and, and striking unilaterally in and out, much like Rangers and Delta. But Green Berets are very, very different. Um, Mark explained to me that they are kind of a combination of John Wick, uh, Jason Bourne, and the Verizon guy. Like they're, um, they're relationship-based connectors who just happen to be lethal. They, they can jump in behind enemy lines with just 12 people, and they, they get surrounded, they get connected, they build relationships with indigenous people, and then they – mobilize them to fight back from the inside out. And I just fell in love with that, uh, Forrest. I fell in love with that concept and the whole little guy concept, the relationship-based stuff. And so I committed my life to that at 14. Uh, when I graduated college, I was a lieutenant and I, I started that journey. It was like a five-year journey just to get selected. And, and I think I failed every school the Army had like twice. Um, but I eventually made it, got my Green Beret and spent 18 years uh, in special forces working in low trust areas around the world, Columbia and the Andean Ridge in the 90s, which was pretty sporty. And then 9-11-2001 saw a major shift where um, I spent the, the preponderance of my time either in Afghanistan or getting ready to go back, working very closely with tribes 
and helping tr- mobilize those tribes to fight back. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and and when I got out, I retired about eight years ago. And, uh, you know, I had a very, very rocky transition, a very rough transition. That's what I talk about in my Generosity of Scars book. But ultimately, I found my way back into the world through storytelling and human connection. And that's what I do now. I founded a for-profit company called Rooftop Leadership. And we basically help leaders uh, achieve more relevance through human connection, the same old school skills I teach Green Berets to use. And then I founded a nonprofit called The Hero's Journey. And that's where we help warriors transitioning learn to use story to connect back with their with their civilian world. And then the Stability Institute you talked about was something I did early on. It's kind of like I really don't work that anymore. It was to, it was to kind of help in Afghanistan. But right now, I just focus on leaders uh, trying to make better connections and bring what I learned in, in SF to help them do that. So after 9-11, though, the, there was a major shift in our operational group from Latin America to Afghanistan. And that was where I spent the rest of my 10 years uh, in service was either in Afghanistan, working in tribal areas, helping Afghan tribes to stand up on their own or getting ready to go back and do it again. I mean, that was really the two phases in our life. You were either in Afghanistan or you were getting ready to go back. Multiple deployments there. Uh, and most of my work forest in Afghanistan was working with with these displaced and uh, underrepresented Afghan tribes in kind of a modern day Magnificent Seven, uh, helping them stand up on their own. I wrote a book about it called Game Changers uh, that I really used to then when I came home from service, which was not a great transition home eight years ago. Um, I ultimately, you know, I went to some pretty dark places and we can talk about that separately, but I had a rough transition. Um, and I ultimately um, drew upon my lessons and, and experiences and scars from Afghanistan to create a for-profit business called Rooftop Leadership and a nonprofit called The Hero's Journey. You mentioned the Stability Institute a little bit earlier. I did a little bit of work uh, on, the, on, the, on the Afghan front as a civilian, but most of my work coming out was just taking the, uh, the lessons I learned in human connection and leadership and teaching business leaders how to do that better here at home. And in helping uh, veterans tell their story when they came home so they didn't go through the kind of really nasty transition that I did that I talk about in my TED Talk. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really my backstory is that everything I learned as a Green Beret around human connection and and mobilizing people to stand up and do things they otherwise wouldn't do just through good interpersonal skills, I now teach that here at home. So is the book Game Changers, is that a military book or is that a leadership book taking your military principles and applying them to business? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, so it started, it started out, the first version was, uh, was Game Changers, going local to defeat violent extremists. And it was specifically written for veterans or active duty members and law enforcement because I saw a lot of this migrating to the United States. And so I wrote it for that. But then a lot of civilians, as I was transitioning home, they picked it up and they're like, hey, like all the stuff you're teaching us is in this book. Would you do a civilian version? So I wrote game changers, abridged citizens edition. Uh, and so, and since then I've written other books for civilians, but yeah, it, it, it actually evolved to become, it's really all about just working locally, working from the bottom up. I think that's what leaders need to be doing today and how to make connections in those really low trust environments where no one is inclined to follow. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. That's what the book's about and really what's what my whole methodology is about. Well, I think most listeners will immediately identify that there's so many principles in the leadership and the military and especially the uh, special forces and what you, the uh, the type of leader you have to be to thrive in those low trust environments. But help us unpack a little bit about 
maybe some of the top things that you're able to distill in entrepreneurs and high powered leaders uh, who might not necessarily have that military background? Yeah. So I think we're very different in um, like, you know, we're not uh, with the David uh, Coggins and, uh, and, and the Jockos of the world who are amazing leaders and they really get into the fundamentals of, you know, hardcore leadership. Whereas my approach to leadership is how do you make a human connection in what I call the churn? And I think your listeners will identify with this. I define the churn as that dynamic social tension that stands between you and your business goals. So for example, there's three components to it. One, it's your arena. And I use the, 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 the military acronym VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, crowded, and ambiguous. Like that was what we faced in Afghanistan, Colombia, and frankly, it's what business leaders face here today. It's never been more complex. Second, human terrain. Green Berets understand the human terrain better than any other force in the inventory. We look at human topography as a map. And so if you look around today, you see this unprecedented distraction, disengagement, lack of purpose, you know, and then distrust. And if you don't understand that at a baseline and how humans take action, how they process and navigate the world, then you're going to, you're not going to be able to connect because they're so distracted, so disconnected. And then finally is what I call resistance. And this is Stephen Pressfield's term for basically the self-sabotage, the internal negative energy that we put up as an imposter syndrome. You're not the right person to do this. Like we get so anxious before a high stakes engagement that we, that we look like we don't trust ourselves. All those things conspire to form the churn. And that's the stuff that prevents us from playing at our highest level when we lead our associates, when we engage a client. And so I teach the old school Green Beret interpersonal skills that I call the high stakes engagement process to get ready, to go in, to engage, to own that room and then recover when you're done. Man, so many things we could unpack there. Uh, great parallels. But I, I want to dive into a little bit about what you briefly talked about uh, with your TED Talk and your transition eight years ago and what you learned in that process. And probably you had to you knew these things, right? You knew them at a deep level, but you were still struggling. You had to probably reteach yourself some of these core concepts. So kind of walk us through that journey. Yeah. So you remember when I talked about um the human terrain and how important it is to understand the nature of the humans around yes. us. Okay. So it's also important that we understand that that's our nature too. You know, humans as humans, we are meaning seeking emotional, social story animals or my acronym. We're a mess <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and meaning seeking means that we navigate the world through purpose. If we can't find purpose, we die. And we're the only mammals that really operate that way. And when I left the military, I was devoid of purpose. I had, you know, like I told you, this is what I wanted to do since I was 14. And then all of a sudden I'm out in the civilian world and I'm not, I'm not connected to purpose at all. I'm just purely transactional. And the other thing was, as I looked around the country, it seemed that the country was as divided and, and tribal as anything I'd ever seen in Afghanistan. And, and frankly, that was pretty disillusioning to me. And I was like, what's the friggin' point? Like what, what was all this for? 23 of my buddies dead. And this is how we're going to treat each other with contempt that we usually reserve for the Taliban or Al Qaeda. Mm. Um, I, you know, it took me into a really, really dark place and a, and a very, very deep depression that I almost took my own life standing in a closet with a, with a loaded 45 and had my son not come home from school early. I, I wouldn't be on this podcast for sure. Mm. Um, that was my struggle. That was my lowest point. Uh, and it was only after that, that I realized when I had shared that story with another buddy veteran who was 
near suicide, that it actually lifted him up. It actually, he saw me as relatable. He saw that he wasn't alone. And I saw that my narrative, my scars could actually be repurposed in the service of someone else. And I fell in love with that notion. I fell in love with the fact that my pain could be repurposed and that it could become um, a mechanism by which to bridge people who were hurting. And so I recommitted myself to using narrative and story to be generous with my scars, to deliver those things in a way that it, other people could could see their own life and could see moves that they could make and actions they could take without going through that pain. And I did a TED talk on it. And it's like, I think it's like a quarter million views. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Uh, so clearly it resonates with a lot of people. Well, I'm looking at it right now and I see almost 30 million views. So <laughs> there, there are a lot of views on it. You definitely struck a chord. So was that in Game Changers or was that um, before? Yeah. yeah, it was, you know, uh, it was a, it was part, it's just, you know, we all evolve as we go, right? right? We change, we, you know, and this was part of the evolution of my journey uh, for us. You know, I, I decided, I'll tell you the truth. I, I did that Ted talk, uh, right after I wrote the play last out and performed it, uh, which I never thought about a midlife crisis, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, writing a play and learning to act at 50, but I did. And I did that talk because everybody kept asking me, why in the hell would you write a play? Um, you know, this late in your life, like, why are you doing this? You have a successful business. Why are you doing this? And I, I just, felt like I needed to share. I had never shared that story of being in the closet and, and, and contemplating taking my own life. And I was, I lost six veteran buddies in the last 18 months to suicide. And I just said, you know, man, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go for it. I'm going to share this story. I'm going to share this concept of the generosity of scars and I'm going to put it out there. I hadn't even shared it with my wife Mm. until, until three days before that Ted talk. Wow. Powerful. (laughs) Yeah, it was really it was the hardest talk I ever did. You can kind of see it on my face when I'm starting out, like I'm I'm not on solid ground, mm-hmm. and uh, it was terrifying. And I'm I'm just betting the response was overwhelming with me too's. Oh wow, you know, I mean, there's this one part in the talk I don't want to give it away, but where I I kind of you know we make the turn out of the closet, and it all comes to it all comes to realization that it was worth it, and the receptivity of the audience literally almost brought me to my knees. Like I had to really fight to just keep my composure and keep going with the story. Um, but since then I can't tell you how many people have written me and told me, Hey, that was my life. I never served, but that's where I was. And, and, you know, there is generosity in a scar for us. Our trauma is one of the greatest gifts that we have to offer the world. If we realize as Dr. Benjamin Hardy says that it happened for us and not to Mm -hmm. us. Well, that's a perfect backdrop for what I want to talk about on this show, because as high powered leaders, you know, I mentioned to you earlier, I shared my story of depression on the podcast. And since I went public with that, I have received a lot of me too's and, you know, hard charging type A's, whether you're in the military or you're an entrepreneur or you're producing in your life. Like we also have the tendency to lose our purpose and uh, really get down on ourselves and be our harshest critics. And so what I would love to know from you and what my listeners are uh, wanting to hear is what do you do across the other domains of your life to make sure that you're showing up in power as a husband, as a father, as a leader um, in, in your different domains of life? So we obviously establish you as a leader in business, but let's start with body. Like, what do you do? Obviously, with the special forces, you uh, that was forced upon you for many years of your life. What do you do now to make sure that your body is staying in shape to lead at a high level? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. And so, um, and I love the way that you set this up for us. So, um, you know, I will start by saying um, for almost two decades, I, I, I operated as a Green Beret, a tactical athlete. And I, I was, I was in great shape. Um, I jumped out of airplanes thousands of times. I blew doors. I fought, you know, and I, I got it, you know, I, I, I had my own cumulative injuries over time and stuff. But the thing is, at the time, I trained and operated like so many operators and athletes did in that era. We operated as barn horses, right? I mean, we would see the barn and we would go. And if you didn't throw up at the end of the work- workout, you cheated yourself. You know, if you didn't hide from your medical file that you had PTS or that you had a knee injury and, you know, and fought to stay deployed, you were not a true teammate. And, and so, you know, I gutted, I gritted, I, I pushed PTS down. I pushed survivor's guilt down so that I could stay in the fight and it nearly killed me. Mm. Um, after my first deployment to Afghanistan, my battalion surgeon looked at me. I just learned I was going right back and he was like, you're going to die on this next rotation and it's not going to be the Taliban that gets you. He had my medical charts in his hand and my, and my labs were off the chain. My cholesterol was through the roof, my blood pressure. And although I was in great shape and I looked great, I, I was in, I was a wreck you know, just all across the board. And, um, I had to relearn, uh, cause I, you know, I saw that this war is going to last a long time. So I, I had to get some resilience. And so I started studying the people in our group who seemed to be able to go over fight and then come back healthier than what they left. And, and, and they were very dialed into, you know, uh, Eastern uh, philosophies and medicines. They were dialed into uh, alternative therapies and breath work and yoga. And, and, and so here's the bottom line that I did. And I write this in my book, Leading Through Chaos, that I wrote after the pandemic happened because I saw a lot of leaders at home suffering from the same kind of just grinding to the finish line and then collapsing. I get what I call a battle rhythm. Uh, Forest, And what that is, is it's the same thing we use in combat. It, it Organizationally, a battle rhythm allows you to deal with chaos, but to keep a rhythm so that you don't get thrown off by day-to-day distractions. So like at 7 o'clock in the morning, we have our commander's update. At 8.30, we do an intel update. At 11 o'clock is logistics. Noon is lunch. And it never changes. There could be 50 teams in a firefight. We're not changing off that battle rhythm because if we do, then all we do is just get drawn from one event to the other and, and we lose our flow. I adopted that for my personal life. You know, I took Jocko's advice that discipline equals freedom, and I built a rhythm for my life that addresses mind, body, spirit, and my craft of rooftop leadership, storytelling, human engagement. And so I have certain times every day that I work out, that I meditate, that I pray. Um, that I do all those things that I need to do. I'm on the stage all the time, rolling around and falling down. And, and I'm a storyteller, like a physical storyteller. So I build time in my day that is sacred rituals that I do that address mind, body, spirit and craft. And I, they are I am adamant about them. I am rigorous about them, whether I'm in a, a Marriott or whether I'm right here or there's a pandemic doesn't matter. I'm going to do those things every day with relentless discipline. And that gives me the freedom to respond to the stuff that life throws in. Well, success leaves clues. And I have yet to have a higher powered leader on this show who didn't have a dialed in rhythm. So I would love to dive in. Like, what does that look like for you? Uh, We're in body. What is the when do you work out? What do you do? How do you prioritize it, especially when you travel? Yeah, so I'm up every morning at 5:30. I don't necessarily believe in the 5 a.m. club, uh, as my, as my one of my trainers says. If you're going to be a part of the 5 a.m. club, you better be part of the 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. club. 
Um, you know, I sleep to me is super important. I have trouble sleeping. I have nightmares. I have, you know, I have a lot of cold sweats and things like that, that are just my reality. Um, so I try to get in bed as early as I can. I turn my blue screen off one hour before bedtime and I, I really try to focus on sleep. I drink, I sleep with a chili pad that keeps my sheets cool. It reduces the night sweats. Um, and just kind of that, that low grade temperature that lets me, that lets me, you know, kind of get up underneath those covers and sleep soundly. Um, I, I, um, I get up at five 30 right away. I hit the floor with my pushups, you know, I'm 52, but I can still, you know, I still knock out 30 or 35 pushups straight. I do, I'm a breath coach. I do diaphragmatic breathing right away while I'm on my all fours. I do 10 cat cow diaphragmatic breaths where I expand my belly on the inhale and I squeeze my belly to spine on the exhale 10 times. And then I go into my bathroom. I hit my knees. I pray. I meditate. Um, and then I get on my feet um, and I move to the garage where I do a pretty intense, usually about a 30 minute workout, either with a trainer uh, or on my own. I focus on functional movement these days. Mm-hmm. I don't do as much, you know, hardcore stuff as I used to. I'm more about functional movement and flexibility because as a storyteller and on the stage, you know, I need to be able to do that. Um, I do a lot of breath work while I'm out there. Uh, again, diaphragmatic breathing, I believe is the key to any high performer. If you're not connected to your breath, you're leaving tons of value on the table. We can go deeper on that in a minute if you want. And then as soon as I'm done with my workout, I do some more breath work. And then I get on my feet and I actually tell my story. I actually tell my backstory like you had me do in some version so that I maintain my narrative competence. Uh, from there, I move inside. I, I journal in my uh uh, self journal, my best self journal on my 13 week stretch goals. I do gratitude. Um, I look at what's important for my day. And then I write in my story journal, just narrative of stuff that happened over the last 24 hours. I just freestyle. Then I go to my garden and I spend some time in my garden. And then I move to my dock and I spend some time with my wife. That's my spiritual piece. And then I'm back in at noon. I do more breathing. And then in the evening, I do another session of journaling uh, and then blue screens off one hour before bedtime. So it sounds like in that routine, you work from home. I do. I have an office that's like one mile down the road, but it doesn't matter. Like if I'm, if I happen to be at the office and it's time for my tactical breathing at noon, then I shut the lights off in my office and I do it in my office and my whole office staff knows my rhythm. They have a copy of it and they know that uh, it's a fate worse than death to screw with me on that rhythm. because <laughs> um, You take me out of my rhythm and then you just took the business out of its rhythm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's do dive into some of the breathing and, and the coaching you do, because I, I think that's some people might think that's fringe or maybe they've seen the Wim Hof and things like that. But talk specifically about what, what that is and what you, what you teach. Yeah, and I understand all the stuff that's out there. Remember, I'm a Green Beret, so I have all the natural prejudices and and, uh, and biases that go towards anything that seems woo-woo or, or, or touchy-feely. And I'm not going to share anything with you that's theory. I have no patience for theory. I still teach Green Berets who go into combat. And if they don't make a connection in five minutes, they're dead. So anything I share with you right now is life and death, and I guarantee it'll work in life and business. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna theorize. And 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 so the breath thing, I'm not, I'm not a Wim Hof. Uh, not, I don't have anything against him. He's, he's not my instructor. My instructor is a lady named Dr. Belisa Veronich, uh, and another instructor uh, up in New York whose name is Jesse. Um, and so I, I got turned on to breath work actually. Forest by the play. When I wrote this play, Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret, I decided to play the, the role of Danny Patton, the protagonist, a Green Beret sergeant who's killed in the very first scene, and he spends the rest of the play trying to figure out how to ascend to Valhalla 
the warrior resting place, but he's holding on to something and he can't let go. So uh, his friends come down from Valhalla who've been killed in the war and they take him back through his life. And he goes through combat. He goes through losing his best friend. He goes through uh, making mistakes and, and friendly fire. And, and, and these are all things that either happened to me or I was there when they happened. And so they triggered me and I had trouble getting through the and it was my acting coach, Carl, who said, dude, you're going to have to get connected to your breath because you're hitting a sympathetic state. You're, you're locking up and you're not engaging. And so you've got to get breath to bring you back to a parasympathetic state. So I started studying under this lady named Dr. Belisa Veronich. She wrote Breathing for Warriors. And um, she helped me see how just doing diaphragmatic breathing, which most of us don't do, by the way, we do vertical breathing that we learned over years of just bracing and, and tensing up. When we do diaphragmatic breathing, it actually, the vagus nerve sends a signal to our brain that puts us in a parasympathetic state. And we go from fight, flight, or freeze to calm and connect. Our cortisol levels drop, testosterone goes up, and all of a sudden we look like we trust ourselves and everybody else starts to trust us too. And I fell in love with that. I got to where I could get on stage and literally could trigger myself into a PTS response, breathe through it, and then be fine on the other side of it when the show was over. And I thought, man, <laughs> so now I teach that to Green Berets to before they go into firefights, before they engage tribal elders, business leaders at Fortune 500s, before they engage a client. Like you just stay connected to your breath and you'll own the room. Uh, but it is a technique. And it's a little bit more, in my opinion, than what Wim Hof does. It's, it's, it's a little bit more technical than that. So uh, I became a master breath coach as well. And I've integrated it into my training. Well, we happen to be recording the day after the election, and I just can't, can't help but think some diaphragmatic breath may be good for the nation right now. Well, man, uh, it's, you're absolutely right. In fact, I say, you know, after we get in a gunfight, after you've been in a trauma, if you're in the middle of a traumatic event, like I can remember one time in Afghanistan, we had a chopper go down holding my best friend and my, and my former company in it. And I was the operations officer. And we've got these guys spilled all over the battlefield. They're wounded. They're taking fire from three sides. And everybody's looking at me like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get them out of here? And the first thing I did was step off to the side around a corner and I did three diaphragmatic breaths. And it dropped me into that parasympathetic state where I could think right, where I could actually function mm -hmm. because we have a primal response to stress, whether it's the election, whether it's our 401k dropping when the pandemic hits or our cash flow is not what we need it to be. And if we're not careful, our emotional temperature goes through the roof and we hit that sympathetic state and we can't, we can't, we can't even function. We physiologically can't hear the other party. And the quickest way to bring yourself down to a position where you're ready to actually lead people is diaphragmatic breath. You got to take three lower breaths where you expand your belly on the inhale and you squeeze belly to spine on the exhale. It literally takes like 15 seconds and you can drop in and get present. Love it. What a great tip. Is there anything we could, is that just something we could Google to make sure we're doing it right? Or is there anything, any? Yeah. You know what? In fact, if you'll hit me up, uh, I'll get you the link for your folks. I have this technique actually that I've developed called pre-engagement preparation or PEP. And this is what I actually teach Green Beret candidates at the Q course. And it's right before they have to go in and be evaluated uh, as an engagement with a tribal elder or, or a ticked off, uh, 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 you know, collateral damage strike parent. Like they have to go in these really high stakes situations and it's called pre-engagement prep. And it's basically three diaphragmatic breaths, 
uh, three things that you say out loud and then three questions you ask yourself and you just drop right in. You can do it before you get up with a client, before you have to lay somebody off, before you transition home from work to your kids, even if it's from the you know your office to the living room. And I'll send you that link. Um, and they can watch that and it will automatically like really help them show up better. Um, and you know, it's happy to do it. Cause I think we need a lot of that these days. Yeah. Please send it. I'll drop it in the show notes. Yeah. All right. So you, but not that, yeah, you can Google a uh, Dr. Belisa Veronich, B R A N O I C H Veronich breathing for warriors. And, uh, you know, Wim Hof, all of them are great. I think she's the best in terms of really getting that high performance breathing. It's all she does. And she's a psychologist. Awesome. Thank you. Um, well, you yeah. laid out a lot of the things that we're going to finish off the show with in your perfect day and your schedule and your rhythm. Uh, we've talked about body. That's obviously a focus for you. Um, let's move into balance. Uh, I know you're married, uh, three kids. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. talk to me about your uh, 25 year marriage with Monty and uh, what it looks like yeah. to show up as father and husband amidst all the things that you're doing, traveling, speaking and you know, a lot of your time overseas. Um, how did you make that work and prioritize it so that you could show up fully as a leader? Yeah. When I think about what I, when I talk about what I'm most proud of, you know, and I try not to do that too much, but when I lay out my body of work, whether it's a, you know, a, a human connection coach to executives at fortune 500 companies, or whether it's running a nonprofit or being an actor or being on Fox news, not, none of those come close to, being married to the love of my life, Monty, for 25 years this Veterans Day and, and all that we've been through with the war and, and, and all that we've endured together. And then raising my three sons, Cody, Cooper, and Braden. You know, Cody is, is, is an infantry officer now about to start ranger school. Uh, Cooper is, is going to be going into the FBI. He's applying for an FBI internship now. And, and Braden, you know, wants to play for the Yankees. He's in his senior year. Uh, and, you know, all of those relationships to me, are the thing I'm most proud of. That's where I've tried to put my 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 best effort. Uh, even in the war, when I was deployed, you know, I I, I always fought to stay connected to my family. Um, I never let. I tried to never let the, the job um, uh, overshadow them when I was home. It, it I had to choose the job enough times for us and and miss birthdays and see my little guys over Skype and miss Christmases. And, you know, I had to do that enough that I said, you know what, I will never ever take them for granted when I'm home. Mm. And, and I like to think that I didn't, you know, I, I'm sure there were moments where I did, but for the most part, I poured myself into the, to them when I was home. I did not have guys' nights or anything like that. It was my family, and to this day, they're still intact. We love each other, de- you know, desperately, and you know, we've had our shares of ups and downs, but that's how we did it. I mean, Monty and I decided early on, before we even had kids, that we were going to put our relationship first. We'd go on date nights. We, uh, she would plan anytime I would come home from R and R. She would plan three days of just us going away, sometimes before we would see the kids. And that was hard for me. But I understood that if we didn't have our relationship, then we could not parent them the way they needed to be parented. Um, and she understood all that. She was the rock. She, I'd love to take credit for it, but I can't. She was really the one who saw that our relationship had to be solid. And then from that came – um, you know, the parenting relationship. And I'm so glad now as, you know, our last guy's about to leave home. And guess what? It's Monty and me again. And we're not looking at each other like, who are you? Like, I haven't seen you since we had kids. Like, we're still in love with each other. We still chase each other around the house. And, and I'm really grateful for that. Well, that's amazing because I know the statistics are not great. 
um, in the military, especially with as as much time as you spent traveling overseas. So uh, the fruit of that focus is evident. Agreed. But I think, you know what, there's also, I mean, there was plenty of times when it's, you know, it was a real strain. Um, but I think in any profession, we can always find a reason to quit. Um, and, and in some cases, maybe, maybe it just isn't meant to be, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to, I'm not passing judgment. I'm simply saying that sometimes in the military, we take this whole, uh, you know, it's hard on a family thing to the point that we use it as a reason to just quit. Mm-hmm. And I for young families listening to this, hopefully, you know, sticking with it in your marriage uh, is worth it. It really is. It's the it's the greatest asset in your life. I think, at least in my life, at fifty two years old and looking back on my career. What have you been able to instill in your boys that you think came as a result of your experience being in the military? Because obviously, you don't want to over um, parent them and treat them like one of your soldiers, but at the same time, you don't want to protect them from everything and, and not let them experience adversity. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I don't know that I've ever been asked that. And, and to be honest with you, I, you know, they, I was hard on them. You know, I was, I was hard on them growing up because I was gone so much that they had to grow up super fast for us. I mean, they didn't really have the time to be kids. Their entire childhood was the war. My son, Cody was three and he's my oldest when the towers fell. And so they were always wondering, is dad going to come home? They knew what I did. I told them I did paperwork and stuff, but they knew I was out there kicking doors and they saw my friends come home in caskets and they were the fathers of their friends. Mm. And, And so they lived their whole life. You know, I can remember when Cooper came to my, they all came to my retirement and Cooper came up to talk to me right before I retired. Uh, before we walked out on the stage and, and with General Miller and I, and he was like, dad, can I talk to you? He's like, son, not right now. And he started to walk away. My, my General Miller, he said, you go talk to that boy. And so we went in the bathroom and he, he looked at me and he said, are you done? And I said, yeah, of course. What are you talking about? He said, I need to hear you say it. And I said, I'm done, Coop. And he put his head in my chest and he sobbed mm. for you know, 15 minutes. And we held, we held the retirement ceremony. Because he had held that in so long because he didn't want me to worry. And that's what my kids grew up with. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's when I say they grew up hard. I mean, they, they had to grow up so fast. And so all I tried to instill in them now is that I love them. I'm grateful to them and that they need to, above all else, be a protector you know, be a protector for people who don't have a voice, be a protector, make a stand for people who, who just feel like their voice isn't heard or they don't know how like that above all else is what I want for them. And, and whether that's in baseball or military, whatever. And, and they've embraced that, you know, they've embraced that. And I, and it makes me really, really proud. And it's just, uh, it's amazing to watch them evolve into these young men that are protectors and that, that, that embody, you know, just that simple aspect of being a good man. Well, it sounds like from what you described, you've raised three leaders. So congratulations on that. Um, I do want to make the connection of you being dialed in at home uh, with your kids. Um, How does that show up for you to be able to be fully present and lead, whether that's in the war or um, on the road delivering your play? Like, can you help me connect those two? That's a great question. Um, you know, in my obsession <laughs> with high stakes engagements, I'm obsessed with connection. 
and, and any form of connection. I like to kind of think of myself as, a, as an aspiring Tim Ferriss of human connection, like uh, any, any medium, whether it's from the stage or a keynote or a client engagement. I, I'm obsessed with figuring out how do you do this at the highest level where you own that room. That person across from you sees you the most re- relevant and relatable person in their life or at least in that moment. Because the, what I found, Forrest, is if you play that position – then they will follow you through anything. They will, they will, they will dis, dis, dis demonstrate reciprocity and they will go, as I say, to the rooftop and stand shoulder to shoulder with you like those tribes did in Afghanistan. And so, you know, that this notion of being present is, is what I call attunement, right? When we, when we do high stakes engagements, there's really three levels. There's attunement, there's life and death listening, and there's narrative competence. And those are the three oldest skills that our creator gave us to hold space and own a room and, and to allow the person across from us to feel safe and connected. And if they do, the amygdala will grant them permission to take action. And so attunement is the oldest of all those skills. And it's nonverbal. It's all about holding space. It's about being present. It's about being, if you want to think about it another way, being available to the other party, an empathetic witness, as Ben Hardy calls it. Like you are, you are, you are, your one focus in that moment is, it's only one thing. And I put this in my Game Changers book, meet them where they are, not where you want them to be. Because if you can do that in any engagement, whether it's me talking to Cooper or to a client or, or an aggravated uh, prospect if I meet them where they are and I demonstrate that I see the pictures in their head, their pain and their goals, and I can articulate that back to them, their emotional temperature comes down. They go into a parasympathetic state and they get ready to listen mm-hmm. to what I have to say. And that's so that's why presence is so important. People can nobody's present these days. They're just on to the next thing. And everything that we're doing is just like we're just running our mouth to run our mouth and and fill the uncomfortable silence. If we're present, if we're in our body, if we're connected to our breath, the other party senses that at a semi-conscious visceral level. It's what I teach Green Berets. And they're emotional, they feel safer. They feel connected before the first word comes out of your mouth. And if you practice that, you can really hold space and own a room without even talking. So I imagine connecting those two things that if I'm connected at home and I am present with my wife and my kids, it allows me to show up at work and completely be present there as well, because I'm not running these stories of, well, things didn't go well this morning or my wife's mad at me or I need to do this or do that. Is Am I on the right track there? I'll take that a step further. You're absolutely on the right track. But before that, you got to lead yourself. Before that, you have to be present for yourself. You have to be still. You have to sit in your thoughts. You have to sit in what you are about that day. You have to feel your feet on the floor. You have to be connected to your breath. You have to be aware of your senses. I mean, look, this isn't new, right? This has been around for thousands and thousands of years. And when you do that, right, then you become available to the other party. You can't lead someone else until you lead yourself, right? And and that's why so much of this body and balance stuff that you're talking about is so important. Um, And then, yes, if if your home is in disarray, think of it as a bullseye. You're working inside to outside, right? So you start with self 
And then it's your the people in your immediate arena, your spouse, your kids, your parents. If any of that is in disarray, because we are emotional creatures, it will nest itself in our uh, operating system and we will navigate the rest of our day carrying that baggage. So we've got to be able to lead and connect and be present with ourselves, with our family, our friends, and then work our way out to business and community. And if those things at the core are not in order, it, there will be secondary and tertiary effects through every aspect of our arena. Well, you pretty much just showed, uh, summed up Tribecast. So thank you for that. <laughs> that, that was fantastic. All right, let's transition into being uh, the final domain and you know, your connection with God, your spiritual connection you mentioned in your routine, praying uh, as part of your morning yeah. routine. So what does that look like? And again, I want to make the connection. Like, how does that help you show up in all domains of life? So I was, you know, I've, I've, I've been in a family of faith all my life. I've been in a family of Christianity uh, all my life. Um, and, you know, I never pushed back on that or anything like that. But I've, I'll be honest, it never really landed that deeply with me as, a, as an adolescent, uh, even when I got in the Army. Um, and when I went in Special Forces, you know, we worked around a, a lot of different religions and you had to be very open minded. Like you really had to because, you, you know, when you work in the Middle East or Southwest Asia, you better have some open mindedness if you're working with tribes <laughs> or you're dead, mm. you know, like. And so I found myself kind of wandering on the faith piece, to be honest with you. And two things changed that in my life for us. One is my alcoholism. My my drinking got to a point as a young captain that uh, everything fell apart. And I went into Alcoholics Anonymous. I went into recovery and I had to rediscover my faith. I had to, I had to, I had to really get humble. I had to get clear that there is a, 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 a God in my life that is far more powerful than I thought myself to be. And I had to reconnect with that. And it, and it, and it humbled me to such a degree. I had been through so much uh, resentment and struggle and just, I had created a mess for my life. Almost lost my marriage to Monty mm. uh, and was a not a good father to my kids in the beginning. And, and so I had to really reestablish my relationship with God through recovery and I'll tell you the second area of my life that crystallized my faith was combat. <laughs> um, you know, there's an old saying that you, you won't ever find an atheist in a foxhole. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will tell you that I lost 23 of my friends in war. That's a lot of friends to lose at 52 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, many of mo- all of them left this earth way too soon. Some of them uh, I held in their last breath. Some of them died doing what I asked them to do. And um, I had to go to places with that that I just had I not had a relationship with God. I don't think I would have made it. In fact, it almost took me, you know, it almost took me out. And so it's been a journey for me. It's been a struggle. It's been ups and downs. But through it all, you know, I feel like my faith at the end of the day has carried me it's, mm-hmm. and, and, and it gifted me. What I'm doing now, it's gifted me this this notion that, you know what, all that pain and all those struggles and all those losses of your buddies and your friends and what you learned in combat, you can now share that with leaders here at home who are struggling and trying to find their way in the world and, and build these communities around that with rooftop leadership and the hero's journey and, and express yourself that way. And I feel like all of my stories are gifted to me from God and, and they are they are simply because I'm a vessel. 
And that's the last thing I'll end on is I truly believe now my body is nothing more than an instrument for high stakes engagements and human connection that is that has been gifted to me. And it's my job to keep that instrument at the highest level of operation and, and have the best relationship with my maker that I can have. And uh, that's my journey until the end of the line. That's the train. I'm, I'm riding that sucker to the end of the station. And uh, and I love it. It's just it feels like I'm where I'm supposed to be. Well, I love that because even in the explanation, you're exposing to us another scar, right? And that's your alcoholism. And I'm sure you're able to weave that into your story that so many people resonate with. Um, But I want to go back to something you said early on. and, And you said we navigate the world through purpose. And when we are devoid of purpose, we die. And so what I hear from you now at 52 years old, where you know a lot of people are you know, kind of winding down is you are living in your purpose and you recognize, like you said, your body is an instrument that he's given you this breadth and depth of experience, uh, both on in the peaks and in the pits. And now you're able to minister to others through telling stories. And I think that's powerful. Thank you very much for saying that. I believe you're, that's absolutely right. You know, there's a recent uh, Gallup poll that says 85% of Americans are disengaged in the workplace. Now, think about that for a second. And that's pre-pandemic. That means that 85% of our associates, our employees, and our, 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 our leaders lack purpose at work and in their life. And, and that's, a, that's an all-time high uh, in this poll. And, 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 but when you think about it, it's not surprising. I mean, Simon Sinek says it in his TED Talk. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. And there's a ton of neuroscience out there uh, that shows that humans are actually driven by meaning. We actually seek meaning and need meaning in everything that we do. You know, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, written as a Jewish prisoner in World War II, he says the same thing. But yet, we, we, when we get to a certain point in our life, we somehow think that we can, that we're done. I'm retired now. I don't have purpose. You know, my old man is 78 years old. And right now, he just did a TED Talk a couple of years ago. Uh, after a, a, a cancer and he just had a stroke and he's trying to restore the American chestnut tree. It's a functionally extinct tree and he can, he, it's hard for him to walk. His left arm doesn't function, but without that purpose for us, he's done. Mm-hmm. Like he's done, but it's what gets him out of bed in the morning. And so my plea with anyone listening to this is that your purpose, even if you're not sure what it is, it's there. It's always been there. It's been gifted to you. Do the work to uncover that sucker and turn it loose. And we, when we lose our purpose, we lose our existence. And, and it doesn't matter what age that is. We have to fight to keep it. And it almost took me out. Well, Scott, you are uh, a gifted communicator and you have blessed me uh, today just sharing your story. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, If if someone wanted to follow you, I mean, first of all, they can watch The Generosity of Scars and I recommend you do on on TED Talk. Uh, But is there any easy way to follow you or website or, or anything like that you'd like to share? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first thing I would say is we're doing a Veterans Day performance with all the churn and division going on around the election. Our nonprofit, The Hero's Journey, which helps warriors find their voice and tell their story as they come home from service. We're doing a streaming performance of combat storytelling with plays from the war and live storytelling from veterans and music. 
that we're calling Better Ground, and it's Healing America Through Combat Storytelling on Veterans Day, November 11th, 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m., and I'll get you the link for that for us. And I would ask, we're trying to get 10,000 citizens to come listen to this storytelling streaming on your phone, your iPad, and, and bring your family. And let's remind ourselves, one, that our veterans are still out there, and we need to honor them and not get caught up in all this political BS and forget our veterans. That's number one. And two, in their stories are lessons for the rest of us to heal. So that's, and the way you can get that is you can go to the heroesjourney.org, H E V, heroesjourney.org, and it's H E R O E S, right? And you can get tickets, 10 bucks. All proceeds go to us building a performing arts center for veterans here in Tampa. That's one. The second one is if you are interested in the human connection stuff that I'm teaching, I'm constantly putting stuff out there. If you go to rooftopleadership.com, uh, there and just go to the blog section, there's probably like 50 vlogs of me sitting around a fire pit talking around this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then all the other ways that you can come train with us online. And we'd love to have you in our tribe. We're wanting to put 10 million rooftop leaders into the arena in the next 10 years that are going to change this country and lead from the bottom up because it's your listeners that are going to lead us out of this division and, and crisis for us. It's not going to be DC. It's going to be activated leaders and I can help them make those engagements better. Love it. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. Scott, you've been gracious and you're going to bless a lot of people. So once again, thanks for coming on the show. Feedback from Tribecast over the last two seasons has been phenomenal, and one of the most common questions has centered around my willingness or ability to deliver coaching to others. And as I've continued my personal journey on the having-it-all lifestyle across body, being, balance, and business, I've been inspired to create a program that I couldn't find in the marketplace. It's called EX3, and it's for accomplished, kingdom-minded entrepreneurs that know they need a band of brothers to play this game with at the highest level. If that's you and you want to know more about what I'm up to, then head on over to ex3impact.com now.